0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: COP 27. It's another big UN climate conference underway in Egypt. But how is this different from last year's big climate conference? And are world leaders losing steam in the fight against climate change? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, we're going to ask those questions to someone watching this very closely. We want to know, are these climate conferences hitting the same when big names like Greta Thunberg are openly speaking out against them? Also, TikTok's supposed to be dead against gambling ads. So what's going on with Sportsbet's new SpawnCon on TikTok? First, though, hack. Uh, clearly, they, they, they have a substantial criminal record.
2: The only option the, and the only visa that they can lodge is a protection visa. But protection visas are for people who need protection. They're asylum seekers, classically. Correct. correct. Why does a drug trafficker need protection?
1: On Triple J. You know, for years, we've been hearing politicians bang on about how strong Australia's borders are. So you'd be forgiven for thinking it's really, really hard to get a visa to live and work here. Well, it turns out organised crime bosses appear to have been rotting the system and getting into Australia to continue their criminal behaviour here. 60 Minutes and the Nine newspapers have been investigating questionable visa practices in Australia for more than a year. And today, the government's launched an independent review saying the system is broken. In a sec, we'll hear from the government. We'll speak to the Immigration Minister, Andrew Giles. But first, here's Shalala Medora to get you up to speed.
2: When I received a tip-off about this story last year, I couldn't believe what I was being told.
3: For the last 12 months, investigative reporter for Nine Newspapers, Nick Mackenzie, has been looking into the holes in Australia's visa system. Among his most explosive findings was the story of how a convicted criminal is being investigated for running an illegal sex ring
4: in Australia. And they were moved uh, like cattle across the country into different motels uh, where they were being exploited by these organised crime syndicates who were then reaping the rewards, the financial rewards for that work.
3: The women are allegedly being exploited and working in modern slavery-like conditions. The Nine reporting says the man at the centre of the Australian sex trafficking ring had done the same thing in Britain. Within months, it's alleged he'd set up an illegal sex ring here in Australia and police reckon that ring is still operating. Much of the investigation looked at how people were coming into Australia, It focused on migration agents, professionals who advise people who want to come to Australia on what kinds of visas they can get.
2: The schools close their eyes on attendance rates. There are many of those, literally, visa schools.
3: In one instance, a registered migration agent advises a woman posing as a sex worker to apply for a student visa to get into Australia.
1: They get the heroin over to another country, then it goes to another country and then it ultimately comes here.
3: In another video recorded by an undercover reporter, a migration agent boasts how easy it could be to get convicted criminals into Australia to work, using a loophole in the system by applying for protection visas.
2: Uh, clearly, they, they, they have a substantial criminal record. Um, the only option and the only visa that they can lodge is for protection visa.
3: People who've asked for protection in Australia get a bridging visa that allows them to work while their application is being processed, even if that application ultimately fails.
2: If one migration agent's company is responsible for north of 150 failed protection visa, asylum seeker applications, is that a clear red flag? Oh, absolutely.
3: The investigation found that particular migration agent, Jason Tarr, was a well-connected Liberal Party donor who'd forked out at least 26 grand in donations.
2: But Tarr boasted of a much closer relationship with MP Jason Wood, while the Liberal politician chaired Parliament's Migration Committee and then served as the Deputy Home Affairs Minister.
3: He'd used his connections to meet with Wood and then Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, though there's no suggestion that either MP knew of concerns around Mr Tar's business dealings. So to recap, Australia's migration system has allegedly been able to be exploited by organised crime figures to engage in human trafficking, and used by migration agents to get people into Australia using loopholes in the visa system. What I would just say is that it's
0: absolutely clear to me that there are systemic abuses of the system occurring at the moment.
3: Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill said a review of the migration system, which was announced after the job summit, will look into allegations of criminal behaviour. But she pointed the finger at her predecessor, Peter Dutton, for letting things get so bad. Here she is on RN Brecky this morning. It has been without question the subject of neglect for nine
1: years. Hag hey, on Triple J. Hi. Shalala Madora with that story and had put some questions to opposition leader Peter Dutton about this story. In a statement, he said he never met with Mr Tarr in a one-on-one setting. At no time were concerns raised with Mr Dutton regarding any alleged involvement Mr Tarr had in the potential misuse of the visa system. And Mr Dutton says he has zero tolerance when it comes to any attempt to exploit our visa system and vulnerable individuals. Well, look, let's dive into this with one of the people responsible now Now, Andrew Giles is the Immigration Minister and he's with us. Minister, thanks for joining us on Hack. Great to be with you, Dave. These allegations are so disturbing that we've been hearing about over the past few days that our visa system here in Australia is being used to allow things like sex slavery, human trafficking, drug pushing. What's being done to stop it?
2: Well, Dave, you're right. The allegations that we've seen over the past week are, as my colleague and friend, the Minister for Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill, said, grotesque. They really are a wake-up call. But you and your listeners should be assured that many of these things are issues that this government were addressing. They are, unfortunately, issues that in large part result from a decade of neglect under the previous government. A decade of neglect that we are getting on with fixing.
1: But I guess there are concerns that the criminal syndicates are still rotting the system right now. So what's the government doing about it now?
2: Well, as soon as these revelations were put to the government, uh, when they went to air over a week ago, Minister O'Neill and I responded immediately. You've seen action that she's already announced and, of course, there's an inquiry into some of the other practices because we've got to make sure we're not just reacting to individual instances, that we are responding to what appear to be systemic issues in a systemic way. And that's one of the reasons why I'm particularly focused on the work that is required to be done in migrant worker exploitation. Work, again, that was put before the last government five years ago but not progressed. Work that's so important, so important given these stories and so many more about the exploitation of workers here on visas who were vulnerable because of their visa status. So I saw
1: Minister Claire O'Neill had said that she thought she'd seen figures that there could be tens of thousands of people who are in Australia illegally, many of those exploited workers. What happens to those people, like people who've been caught up in this who are pretty much collateral damage, you can say. What happens to them? Well, this is
2: why we need a systematic response, because we recognise that these people are not the people at fault. It is the cruel people who are involved in people trafficking um, syndicates, many of whom are outrageously and grotesquely exploiting individuals who are uncertain or vulnerable because of their visa status, or, or their lack of a visa status whatsoever. These are issues that require a serious systematic response, informed by evidence, that really brings an end to these practices. The
1: review that the government's announced into Australia's immigration system, what's it going to be looking into?
2: Well, we're very conscious in coming to government that the migration system was in crisis. You know, when I arrived, there were a million visa applications on my desk. It It seems like it's still in crisis at this point. Well, what we need to do is to fix the immediate problems. And I think every one of your listeners, everyone in Australia is feeling the consequences of a broken migration system. Because I think we know that Australia is a country made up of migrants, those of us who aren't First Nations people. More than half of us are either born overseas or with a parent born overseas. So those broken human connections through the border closure period plus the difficulties people have had in getting here for work have created problems right across the economy, right across the society, which we're getting on with. More than 2.9 million visas have been granted since I came into office as the Immigration Minister, but of course there's more to be done. We need to respond to the immediate crisis, but also look to set up a a system that works for the future. That's what this review is about. That's why Minister O'Neill has put together a fantastic group of Australians with a diverse skill set to make sure that the government is getting the best of advice, not just to deal with the problems of today, but to make sure that our migration system works well into the future.
1: I've seen that this review's been talked up in the wake of these allegations that we've just been hearing about, but we knew that this review was coming, right? It's not new. We heard from the Jobs Summit earlier this year that this was coming, so it's kind of been re-announced on the back of these allegations.
2: I wouldn't say it's been re-announced. The review was an outcome of the Jobs and Skills Summit. It was something that really came together as people um, discussed the future of our economy. People in that room in Canberra, and I think across our society, recognise how important immigration is to Australia and our future prospects and the need to get it right. What we announced was the review itself and the people who are going to conduct it, Martin Parkinson, Joanna Howe, John Azares, as I say, three eminent Australians with a diverse experience and understanding who can do fantastic work synthesising um, the views of Australians around the country to make sure, again, we don't just fix the immediate problems, which we are getting on with, but we look over the horizon to make sure our system is fit for our future purposes as well. You're listening to HAC. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Australia's Immigration
1: Minister... Andrew Giles, about some real big issues with Australia's immigration system. Minister, can I ask you about Australia's refugee intake? Because Labor went to the election promising to increase Australia's refugee intake substantially, but it hasn't happened. Why not?
2: Well, we're a government firstly, that keeps our promises, and secondly, that makes sure that we do things properly. It wasn't in we, the budget, we, though. No, no, but that, that, that budget was handed down uh, four and a bit mince, uh, months into our time into government. We made a commitment to double our refugee intake over time, but we've got to make sure we get it right. We've got to make sure when people come here, they can access the right sort of settlement services. It, it, that's something that's vitally important. We can't just increase it um, by by double overnight. We've got Make sure that the systems are in place. It does, already seem, made... though,
1: it does seem, sorry, it does seem with everything that's happening in the world, with conflicts in Ukraine, in Afghanistan, um, all sorts of things that are happening in parts of Africa that we've been covering over the past few months. That you know, maintaining the previous government's humanitarian intake doesn't seem to be best approach at this point.
2: Well, I'm very confident that we have got the best approach. What we have done is made sure that our migration intake, when it comes to our meeting our humanitarian obligations, our commitments, I should say, will be non-discriminatory. That's a hugely important thing to make sure that we are resettling people on the basis of need, not any other consideration. And in a world where we have more than 2 million people in urgent need of resettlement, we've got to focus on that priority. And when we think about how this program operates, it's also important that we set itself up for the long term to make sure that when we welcome people here, people who've been through trauma, we can give them the appropriate settlement services uh, supports. That's something that I've been working on, something I'll continue to work on. The other important thing is that we've been progressing with our uh, commitment to increase community sponsorship places, recognising that there are so many Australians who want to play their bit additional to the government's program to settle refugees. That's a commitment that we will make that will settle up to 5,000 more refugees in communities in Australia built on a fantastic model that's been underway in Canada for years there's a lot that we are doing in this space but equally we recognise that we've got to be a consistent and cooperative global actor because this is not a problem we can solve by ourselves I guess it just seems from a bystander's point
1: of view Minister and I understand and can appreciate it's a very complex system but when you've got people who are you know getting visas and are alleged to be involved in criminal activity and then other people who are very clearly in need and then not able to access Australia, something's not going right here.
2: Well, let me be clear. These are two separate issues. The issues that you raised that we've been talking about, about migrant worker exploitation, about people trafficking, are being dealt with seriously, but they don't affect our ability to meet our humanitarian obligations. They are different issues and are are being um, progressed differently. In terms of the issues confronting people seeking protection who are fleeing persecution in Afghanistan, as I say, this is an incredibly important issue to the Australian government, but it is also, as you acknowledge, quite complicated. We may we have already more than 220,000 people asking for our help. We've made decisions in consultation with the community about the priority people, uh, the priorities that we should be looking to in, in giving people protection as well as connection to Australia, those people who worked for Australians, um, people who are members of minority groups, women, uh, members of the LGBTIQ plus community. All of these things means we've got to be really careful to process all requests for protection appropriately.
1: We'll leave it there. Immigration Minister Andrew Giles, thank you very much for joining us on HACK.
2: Great to be with you.
5: HACK. On triple J,
1: And we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, apparently it's only hard to get a visa if you're fleeing war or you've already been living here for a decade and integrated into the community. Another person, it's clear the visa system is broken. Hopefully this government review they've announced will actually fix the problem. Somebody else says, what bothers me about this is that legitimate people are only going to find it harder and harder to come here for education and employment. James in Bunjalung country says, the minister talks about fixing the problem but I haven't heard precisely how. And another person says, my partner and I submitted a residency application four years ago and still no word on what's happening and where the application's at. My partner has had to have multiple medical checks and police checks, which are not cheap, and we have to travel a long way to do it in Melbourne. Look, we will be keeping track of these stories and keep you up to date.
0: Hack, I think the evidence now is pretty clear about the need for very, very strong restrictions on gambling advertising. On Triple J.
1: You know, we've been speaking a bit about gambling ads lately because last week the government announced some big changes that will mean gambling ads are going to change from next year. You might remember, instead of that gamble responsibly tagline, betting companies will have to have a warning like, chances are you're about to lose. But what about social media? Because the government doesn't actually regulate the ads you're seeing popping up on your social feeds. It's up to the platforms themselves to do it. Now, TikTok's policy was always pretty clear. It had an outright ban on gambling ads. But now TikTok's made an exception for Sportsbet. It's letting Sportsbet run ads on its platform, and that's left a lot of people pretty worried. I'm wondering, have you seen these sponsored posts? What do you think? Let me know, 0439 757 555. Troasters got the story.
3: Oh, yeah, I'm a big-time punter, big-time punter. You know where you'll find me every Saturday. You know where you'll find me? Trackside.
1: Have you scrolled
5: past this on TikTok? If you haven't, let me paint a picture. As you can hear, it's a young woman. She's talking to the camera and the text on the video says, me pretending to like horse racing, so I impressed my crush. And then you look even closer. You see the gamble responsibly tagline and then see the sports vet logo. Yep, it's a gambling ad. It's not the only one doing the rounds on TikTok. This one says, what your shoes say about you, spring racing edition.
1: Start with an absolute classic, the RMs. You obviously spend much more time looking at yourself than you do at the form.
5: And this one says if local cricketers planned your wedding.
2: If anyone knows why these two should not be joined together in holy matrimony, speak now or forever hold your two-piece.
5: Seems to have nothing to do with gambling at all. The ABC found seven of these ads and it's weird because TikTok normally doesn't allow gambling ads on its platform in Australia and in many countries around the world. But they've launched an Australian-first, strictly controlled advertising pilot with Sportsbet. A TikTok spokesperson says they're only showing ads to users over the age of 21. They're capping the frequency that people see these ads. They're rolling out an opt out feature so you can decide if you don't want to see them anymore. And they're monitoring the ads to make sure that everyone has a safe experience. But Professor Samantha Thomas from Deakin University, who researches the effect of gambling advertising on people under the age of 25, is not impressed.
0: We know that this is a platform that is really appealing and engaging. So to start to see these types of posts coming onto this platform, is really concerning for us in terms of the reach of the gambling industry to young people in particular. These videos appear to be sponsored posts, but they're actually not overtly obvious as being gambling ads. They're quite often funny videos, they're similar to what we would see in kind of TikTok viral trends, and we know that these types of humorous videos are really highly recalled.
5: Professor Thomas says these videos make gambling seem like something everyone is doing, which makes people more likely to start.
0: 75% of people in our research now think that gambling is a normal or common part of sport. And when we ask them why that is, most of them say it's because of the ads that they see for these products.
5: And research has shown again and again how bad gambling can be for people and their families and their friends. And Australia has the highest gambling loss per person for our population size in the whole world. So knowing all of this, why has TikTok brought sportsbed on board? Here's Dr. Nick Carra. He's a social media expert from the University of Queensland.
2: In its early phase, our platform is really organised around building engagement. And now TikTok's through that phase, you know, it's in the hands of millions, billions of users. They um, they use it for hours every day, so now it's ready to fully monetise all of that attention.
5: So to sum it up, TikTok has millions of users and now the company wants to make money off them. But Dr. Carra says TikTok will do this really, really carefully, which is why they're only trialling sports bet at the moment. And he reckons they'll keep slowly trialling other kinds of controversial advertising like alcohol as well.
2: I think they're trying to just figure out what categories of advertising are kind of worth the trouble so that a we make enough money off them, but we don't face too much kind of heat from the public or heat from regulators. And I think a a category of advertising like gambling is like that. And I think they're gonna bring many of these harmful industries advertisers into the stable and in a sense test them out and see see if it turns out to be a, um, a relationship that benefits TikTok.
5: Because of this, Professor Thomas and Dr. Cara want more regulation of gambling ads on social media. At the moment, there are only rules for TV, radio and online sports streaming. The government suggested they're going to take a look at this really soon, but Professor Thomas says we can't keep waiting.
0: I think the evidence now is pretty clear about the need for very, very strong restrictions on gambling advertising to protect people uh, from being reached by these ads, but also to protect them from these types of products becoming normalised. Hack
1: on Triple Jack. Maddie Troster with that story. Thanks, Maddie. And we've got messages coming through on this one. Someone says gambling's a multi billion dollar industry. We need to stop thinking that they might do the right thing they won't. It's all about the money they'll grab wherever they can. Another person says, I have been seeing the gambling ads on TikTok. It's weird because the way they do it makes it seem totally legit. I can see how people would be fooled by them. Look, we're going to keep you updated because as you've been hearing, there's a big parliamentary inquiry that's happening into online gambling at the moment. If you've had any experience, you can make a submission to that inquiry. The submissions close at the end of this week. So we'll be bringing you updates in the months ahead.
5: As it is now, the COPs are not designed
3: to really change anything. It's like they are being turned into an opportunity for big polluters to greenwash themselves.
1: On Triple J, there's another massive climate conference underway. COP 27. You might remember COP 26 last year. All eyes were on Glasgow. But this UN climate conference in Egypt it doesn't seem to be getting as much attention. And there aren't as many world leaders there. Like our own Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, isn't at the COP conference. He's going to be attending some other big international meetings, ASEAN, APEC, G20 in the weeks ahead. So he hasn't gone, but he's sent ministers. So how seriously are countries taking these climate conferences now and what's expected to happen at this one? Let's ask someone in the know. Tim Buckley is a director at Climate Energy Finance, a think tank, and he's with us now. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us on Hack.
4: Good afternoon, Dave. Great to be on. A lot
1: of people will remember the Glasgow conference last year when countries were being asked to commit to targets and that sort of thing. What's different about this COP conference?
4: Yeah, it's it's a really good point, the UK invested a huge amount of political capital and financial resources and man hours, people hours into getting a global effort so that they had a series of globally significant announcements lined up before we all got to Glasgow. And so COP26 did actually have a rolling set of announcements that had been really heavily invested in by the UK Prime Minister down to the climate champions, and I think they did a huge job. And so, unfortunately, after that huge effort, Egypt doesn't have the same resources or global imprimatur that the UK government gave the COP26. So it's going to suffer a little bit from fatigue, but it also suffers because of the um, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the massive global hyperinflation of all things fossil fuel related. So there are a couple of headwinds against it. And I suppose maybe a third one, which you also explained in your introduction, the fact that it's a African country hosting it There is going to be a lot of discussion about compensation for developing nations who are suffering like Pakistan and Bangladesh, et cetera, and the whole of Africa from the the, effectively the fact that the industrial nations have had such a free carry for 200 years, polluting the atmosphere, and now it's the poorest countries in the world that are suffering most. And so the whole idea of liability and compensation was the... Top of the agenda for the Egyptian COP27 discussions, which started on Sunday. And uh, obviously the idea that the rich are actually going to pay for their sins of the past is something keeping the rich very quiet, obviously.
1: Yeah. And I imagine countries have different things to say about all this. Um, Have there been uh, a lot of big commitments so far or are people just taking in the discussions and wanting to talk about it at this stage?
4: Well, the fact that it's even got on the agenda is good by uh, Egypt to to make sure it's there front and centre, but it's all about the the wording's gone from liability and compensation to cooperation and facilitation. In other words, lots of political speak with no substance. So I wouldn't be holding my breath for rich countries like Australia or America or England or, or Germany to really put their hands in their own pockets and help the uh, the, the poorest, I don't know, five billion people on the planet to uh, to actually uh, compensate them for any of the damage to, that they've, they've incurred.
1: We've got a message that's come through. Someone says, we gave Scott Morrison such a hard time for not going to the last COP. Um, doesn't seem like people care that much that Anthony Albanese isn't going to this one. I wanted to ask about that because Australia's campaigning on the sidelines to host one of these climate change conferences. The government, I think, is wanting to host the 2026 event in partnership with some Pacific nations, but the Prime Minister isn't at this one, even though there are some world leaders there, like US President Joe Biden. It does seem like there are fewer world leaders at this event. It's lost a bit of that gloss, maybe
4: yeah there is a maybe an element of truth to that i mean the statement of fact yes our prime minister is not going but i think we are as a country taking a whole lot of new pledges australia now actually has a climate act we've got a 43 percent emissions reduction target with by 2030 we've got an 82 percent renewables target by 2030 We are joining on for the Global Methane Pledge. So there's actually policies and substance from this new federal government. When Angus Taylor turned up last year, it was an absolute farce that we even bothered turning up. I mean, it was sponsored by Santos, the Australian booth. So, uh, I mean, might as well call it what it was, an Australian booth sponsored by one of Australia's biggest fossil fuel polluters. So, uh, yeah, I think that's chalk and cheese. At the end of the day, there are other issues and Australia has only just started with the Albanese government and I think uh, they want to actually build momentum. So going into 2026, I think it's it's no coincidence that's after the next federal election because the Anthony Albanese government wants to get re-elected in 2025, 2026 and then have a very, very clear mandate for accelerated ambition beyond what they're already doing so they want to be the sensible center and they want to take the nation forward um rather than get away from the climate wars that the uh, lmp gave us for the last decade
1: we've got activists like greta thunberg who are calling this conference just an opportunity for greenwashing lying and cheating i don't know what are analysts and and people like yourself tim hoping to come out of this
4: yeah it's a very real issue i mean the greenwash is a very real issue the securities commission in america the sec has said they will actually take financial institutions to, to court and, and charge them for greenwash if they continue to do it. So it's starting to actually have legal and financial implications. You can't make a pledge to 1.5 degrees and have no credible substance, no interim targets and no path aligned with the science. And, uh, unfortunately, we saw that today. I mean, the global finance, sorry, the Glasgow finance alliance for net zero emissions is a financial, uh, global financial pledge to align with 1.5 degrees. It's being driven by Mark Carney and um, Michael Bloomberg. They've now got $150 trillion of collective assets under management, but it's really noteworthy. CBUS of Australia just pulled out today from Mm. that alliance. So they've said that they won't put resources into a global pledge. They won't work with global peers to drive climate action. I find that really disappointing from Seabus, Interesting. But, uh, yeah, yeah, greenwash is a real risk.
1: Well, and it's what we've been hearing from a lot of activists like Greta, who's been speaking out about this. Tim Buckley, look, uh, we appreciate your insight into this. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack.
4: Brilliant. Thanks, Dave.
1: Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.